Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Ryan! This is Buddy Franklin! This is the greatest showman! Got the handball off to Myers. Myers looking for the lead of Stengel. Gee, they're good. Gee, they're sharp. Randall Gazzarioli. Oh, who else? McDonald. Tibble. From inside the centre square. time of day once again welcome to episode 115 of americans watching the footy our round 16 recap i am benjamin castle here in south san francisco california and i'm ethan castle in st paul minnesota do australians know that soundbite as well as we think they do i'm sure they do it's pretty iconic i use that every chance i can no so do i it's it's, it's really fun especially in combination with a. Uh, Obama. See, I feel like that's a little bit deeper. Uh, they should know Obama soda. I feel like most people should. It's kind of cultural literacy at this point. Back to a full slate of games and minimal overlap was nice. This round, I had everything. So rather than do some like general, we had a little of this, we had this, we had this. Let's just get into it. Uh, Brisbane 2014, 134, defeating Richmond 7 11 53. I was not expecting Richmond to win this game. I don't think anyone really was, but uh, disappointing on their part. They got their asses kicked. Nine goals to one in the first half. And I mean, it was inaccurate for Richmond as well. They kicked one seven in the first half. And, you know, it wasn't as bad in the second half, but the damage had already been done. The Lions were dominating from the beginning with clearance and contest success through Lockheed Neal and Josh Dunkley. And they outnumbered pretty much everywhere. They consistently won the ball back in the midfield when they didn't win it themselves in the first place. 48 midfield intercepts is pretty insane. Basically, if you half watched this game, every time you looked up, at least during the first half, and really most of the game, considering that Brisbane won every quarter and other than the fourth quarter, won them all by at least 21 points. You look up and you just see Brisbane running through the midfield, totally outnumbering and outracing Richmond. So a continuation of last week in a lot of ways for them. I didn't expect it to be nearly as easy this week, but it sure was. And it was less of a focus on some of the defensive matchups this week. It was more Brisbane in the forward 50 rather than working a little bit outside the 50-meter arc through the middle third. Their possession was even more dominant on Thursday. And they shared the wealth in terms of the goal-kicking. Lockheed Neal kicked too. That's pretty rare for him. Joe Danaher, 5-1, uh, 19 disposals, 11 contested possessions, 10 marks. Jonesy, well done. Sarah Jones said before the game on Fox footy, Joe Danaher would kick five. And he passed up a couple looks at shots as well, which was frustrating just because as soon as he got four, I was thinking, oh, I wanted to actually get it for Jonesy to be right. And he seemed hesitant to take another kick for some reason. But it's another one of those cases where what if Hipwood or Danaher beats you and this week it happened to be Danaher. Not that Hipwood was bad or invisible, just he wasn't the main star of the show. Not a bad thing. 
In fact, it's good that Brisbane are willing to vary their targets like that. Seemed like defensively, I mean, the Lions weren't tested that much, but when they were, it was a really nice week for Kadeem Coleman. Coleman with 23 disposals, 10 marks, and 606 meters gained. I don't think there's any question about having him in at halfback anymore. I mean, obviously with Daniel Rich having taken himself out, some of that competition goes away. Like I said, did not expect Richmond to win this game, but I would have liked for them to at least be competitive, and they really weren't. It's the sort of game that makes you question where they are in a very crowded middle of the pack. I mean, the middle of the pack all of a sudden spans 12 spots, just 10 points separate fourth from 15th and that's the closest in the 18 team era with eight games remaining in the season it's even closer than 2020 i was doing some research earlier on this for a video that i'm gonna try and get done this week and yeah even in 2020 fourth place was three wins clear at the midpoint of the season for 15th neil in addition to those two goals had 34 disposals a behind 10 clearances and eight marks Hugh McCluggage, 34 disposals and 496 meters gained. Kadeem Coleman, 23 disposals, 10 marks. Connor McKenna, Golden, 22 disposals. Will Ashcroft, a behind, 21 disposals, 471 meters. And Darcy Wilmot, a goal and 21 disposals. Fun fact about Darcy Wilmot. Did you know the Wilmot Proviso was named after him? Okay, that is a much deeper cut for Australians. The Wilmot Proviso was... A proposal in Congress in the 1840s to ban slavery in territory that the U.S. won in the Mexican-American War. I would be surprised if many Australians know about that. Any Australian who wasn't in the United States for junior year of high school that knows that deserves an award. The Lions were plus 30 on inside 50s, plus 24 from clearances, more than doubled them up. 22 to 5 center clearances. That's that's a straight up beatdown. And consistently converted from turnovers as well when they didn't get those clearances. With a little bit left in the third quarter, the Lions had already scored 75 points from turnover to Richmond's 22. It was a demolition. One weird stat is that Richmond actually laid 10 more tackles. The Lions only laid 43 for the whole game. Actually, that isn't all that weird to me. You look at possession time, where their possessions were. It makes sense that the team that had to be in defense more is the one that ended up tackling more. Still, you think, considering the pace the Lions played at, that they end up at least with 50-some. I wasn't too shocked by those numbers. It's one of those stats that's fun but means nothing. Yeah, in this case, yeah. If you get beaten, you ought to be laying more tackles, putting on as much pressure as you can, unless you're the West Coast Eagles most weeks. Noah Balta led Richmond with 24 disposals, gained 773 meters. That's pretty telling of how often they were in defense when your lead interceptor is the one to dispose of the share of the most. Jacob Hopper on return, kicks 2-1 from 22. Richmond had a couple important changes in this game. Hopper came in from Prestia. Noah Cumberland actually did end up playing because Dustin Martin suffered flu-like symptoms, and I imagine that Martin would have been able to increase some of the pressure, maybe have a bit better run and carry. The question is, you know, how much would Richmond have been able to get the ball up to him? Nathan Broad, 21 disposals, 10 intercepts, and 10 marks. Jack Ross, a goal from 21 and 9 marks. Tim Tarano, just 21 disposals, kicked one point off those. I said early in the week, I regret making Taranto my captain. I think it could cost me. It very nearly did. Nick Vlostone had 20 disposals and 8 marks. I think he's got to be in the 
All-Australian extended squad at this point, when Richmond are able to control games, it's because he's leading them from halfback and intercepting well. Mason Cox has predicted like 12 different teams will make finals. I feel like you've predicted like 60 different guys to make the 44. No, I actually haven't said much about it. The only ones that I really remember talking about lately are him and Luke Ryan. Couple final stats for this one. Just uh, a couple trends holding for the Brisbane Lions. Since the start of last year, the Lions are now 14-2 when Lockie Neal gets nine or more clearances. He got 10. And Brisbane are just 14-10 when he gets fewer than nine. And then the Lions this year are now 10-0 when Hugh McCluggage gets 20 or more disposals. A reminder that they're 0-4 when he plays and doesn't get 20. Sydney 6-18-54, Drew with Geelong 7-12-54. It was a draw. Both the teams were even. We can play and... forbidden music. I was so disappointed that we weren't around each other for the draw, so we couldn't have just, like, gone and sung it with each other. Because it's kind of hard to sync up singing over the phone. I mean, it's doable, but not. Also, I think you were at work at this point anyway. Yeah, I've been, I've been working pretty early that day. Anyway... The reaction of among Geelong seems to be frustration with the performance, but like, I can't be too disappointed because we escaped the two points when we should have had none. Yeah, inaccuracy late from Jake Lloyd and Callum Mills allowed for that to happen. And I guess Isaac Heaney in the final minute off of a smother. Yeah, the Swans, I mean, obviously 618 speaks for itself, especially in dry conditions. The expected score of this game, if you round it up, 97 to 69. Nice. And the scene that really sticks out to me again and again out of this game that you see again and again was Robbie Fox getting behind Jack Henry after nobody could mark an Angus Sheldrick kick and then hitting the post from point blank range. That cut into one with 2.11 left. Then you add Isaac Heaney missing on the full with a minute 19 left. And then he kicked behind with 30 seconds left and there was really... No more in the way of opportunities after that. I can only imagine how your heart was racing during this game. There were so many instances in the final minute where like, it became clear, ooh, there aren't going to be many goals left in this game. And once we kicked four straight behinds to stretch the lead out to 54-46, I knew we weren't getting another goal. Teams kicking to the left side of the screen were really inaccurate all night. I mean, the Swans were inaccurate everywhere, but... Wait a minute, didn't that happen earlier in the year? Where, was it the game against Port? I, I think so. On the Swans, where teams could only kick straight to one side of the oval? I think. But yeah, it was, I believe teams were 4-14 kicking to that end. And, I mean, 9-16 at the other isn't much better, but, but there were multiple, like, oh god, here they go. It looked like the Swans were getting their run and getting their goal. And I was getting, you know, visuals that were going to scar you for life, or at least until you beat them in the grand final. And they kind of just let us off the hook. They are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. Down 36 to 28 at halftime. It was Sydney 412 to Geelong 44 at that point. That was right around the time that I was leading before work. And I just kept thinking, okay, the Swans are going to be able to kick straight enough and actually pull away with this. They had the possession time. I mean, both teams were moving all right, but the Swans' midfield was more complete. And between Luke Parker and Errol Golden, I was expecting Golden would end up kicking one. He ended up kicking for no goals, too. I thought after we got our asses kicked from the first half of the first quarter, it's like, ooh, we're going to make them pay now. 
then we got beat up in the second. I thought, all right, early third, they're probably just going to get us and the talent's going to rise to the top unless we make some serious adjustments, which I think we did. I think we did a lot less zone defending second half. There was something Asabaratulea really struggled with. He ended up getting subbed out. This was not a good game for him. I, I really like him one-on-one, but I guess it's just he doesn't have enough experience yet to do some of the zone marking stuff that was needed in this game. Right now, Radagalea is not part of Geelong's best defense. And honestly, even with what the Cats are trusting him with right now, I don't think it would be a terrible if he did move on. Oh, I'd like him to stick around. I think there's some work that needs to be done, but I think the ceiling is still so high. The question is, how much are you valuing the ceiling? How much are you looking these next couple of years when you, you are at the end of the window of some of these premiership players? You're transitioning okay, but but you've got to expect that you'll be down a bit for a couple years. Anyway, he ended up getting subbed out. Luke Parker got the opening goal of the third quarter, and that's when things felt like they were going to go downhill. And instead, for the rest of the quarter, we outscored the Swans 16-3 to with the last goal coming from Brian Myers. His third of the season had a really solid game. He ended up with four coaches' votes. He had... A goal off 27 disposals. He also had three assists. So kind of a normal week for him in that regard. He's up to 26 for the season. That is a career high for him. Next closest is Christian Petraka with 20. He's also ninth in score involvements in the league. The only two guys that are in the top 10 that don't have double-digit goals aside from him are Stephen Cornelio, who only has five goals, and Rory Laird, who has two. That's the ninth game of his career. The ninth of his first 98 games in which Byers has had three goal assists. Anyway, it was a really nice play where he ended up selling some candy in the process. It was a really high-octane sequence with a big Tyson Stengel tackle on Joel Lamarty. And I thought going into the fourth, it's like, oh shit, we might have this. We have a lot of momentum going. And Tom Hawkins did get the goal with 15.36 left to take the lead and then kick four behinds. Brayden Campbell scores with 5.38 left off of a Hayden McLean assist. And then Swans had pretty much all the remaining chances. Cats did have one forward 50 sequence that ended up with Aaron Francis getting his mother. Francis was not as much of a minus in this game as he's been at times. I still don't think he's part of Sydney's best 22. I think once Tom McCartan comes back in, Francis has to be out. But he didn't actively hurt them in this game, which is a step forward. So being part of a draw, I'm pulling for a draw in pretty much every game where I don't care who wins. This one, I mean, it helps you when there is a draw as well in other in, games. So yeah, it makes sense. In this one, I'll take it because we didn't deserve to win. Every Cats fan should take six points against the Swans. Yeah, exactly. That's That's part of it. If you told me at the start of the year... You're going to get six of a possible eight points against the Swans. I'd say, sure, happily take that. It also means unless you end up level on points for the team that has a draw percentage, really doesn't matter. You could tell after the game, like the attitude from the players, there was like a quiet confidence in all the post-game interviews where it was like, we can still be better. Without explicitly saying it, it was like, okay, we were lucky to get out of here with points, but like the goals are still big. Sydney needed four points a lot more. Like, four points out of this game would have been great. As of now, sitting at ninth, and with North on the horizon for next Sunday. So, that's attainable, but every game after that, Caps should be sweating. I feel 
decently good about the games against the Bombers and Saints. And yeah, obviously you'll feel good about how many games they have at Cordelia Park going to the end of the season. Yeah, but but you've got Port even at home is going to be tough at Brisbane and a rematch with Collingwood. Those are probably the two toughest games of all. But yeah, come out of this one with something. I'll take it. And we've now played the It's a Draw song after games more than we've played We're the Eagles. Yep. And I'm not surprised by that. You know, we have one to two draws a season, and we've had our Eagles win for the year. Swans are going to be playing the next two Thursdays, so quick turnarounds for them. They go to the G to play Richmond this coming Thursday, and then they host the Bulldogs for round 18. The Bulldogs and Thursdays, what's new? Well, usually I feel like the Bulldogs get a lot of Fridays, actually. But yeah, those are the final two Thursday nights of the year in the book before games. No real easy contests left for Sydney. I mean, they should clean up against the Suns at home in round 22. And otherwise, though, we'll be talking about them a lot going down the stretch. I, I'll wait. I, they should probably also win Sydney Derby 26 because they tend to clean up really nicely at the showground, which is weird. I don't know. I'm, my perception of GWS is pretty high right now. Oh, mine is too. But you look at the history of that matchup at the showground and the Swans tend to have it. Nick Blakey led the Swans and the game with 29 disposals in this, the first draw between the Swans and Cats in their history. Amazingly, they also hadn't met in the grand final until last year. He's done much better in physical contests the last couple of weeks, and that's one of the reasons their defense has been better. Been helping cover sometimes in the back third, even with Callum Mills back in. Mills with 24 disposals, by the way. Luke Parker had a goal from 27 and 8 marks. Errol Golden, I mentioned he kicked no goals too. 26 disposals, 9 tackles, and 698 meters. I really expected him to get a goal in the second half and have that be big for momentum. Justin McInerney with 22 disposals. Angus Sheldrick with 21. I'm pretty sure he's the one that had that smother on that Stewart kick before the Heaney behind. We were both straining our eyes to look at that vision, but I think it was Sheldrick. The Swans' disposal efficiency inside 50 was very good, 64%, and there wasn't a lot of, you know, kicking around uncontested there. The Cats just 44%, so not, you look at purple, but a bit subpar. To give up 64 certainly is subpar. Yeah, the 44, I think that was dragged out a bit by like a couple of those sequences in the fourth quarter where they had a bunch of forward time but couldn't get a good look out of it. The Swan 64 just kind of helps demonstrate how their inaccuracy really, really hurt them. Because like I said, they were the better team. Uh, I thought this game was actually umpired decently well. There was like one early call I didn't like. And then, oh, there were a couple of bad calls each way. The most ridiculous one, though, was Hayden McLean not getting penalized for knocking the ball out of Patrick Dangerfield's hands. And it led to him kind of rushing his kick because he wasn't given any additional time. He missed left. That cut the lead to six midway through the third. But I can't look at this game and think, you know, we would have won if not for this one moment. We're lucky to get points out of this. Cats did take 12 contested marks to Sydney's three. I thought it was a better game for Jack Henry. I thought it was a quietly good game for Sam DeConing. Swans laid... 17 more tackles, which is concerning considering how much they had the ball. Uh, I'm surprised Sydney only used 60 interchanges, I guess, because a lot of times after kicking behinds, they just kind of had to rush back. Exactly. Yeah, one other thing, but there's one other thing weird with interchanges and stuff. They didn't use their sub. That is the second time this year a team hasn't used a sub. I can't think of any other besides the time that the Bulldogs didn't. Yeah, Ryan Clark did not see the oval. Feels weird to have 
the tagger as a sub, not a position that you normally see in that spot. Well, it's like at the same time, but where would he have gone? I mean, I guess, am I crazy to say that Clark would have tagged Ryan Myers? Him or maybe Tom Stewart? Under normal circumstances, he tagged Jeremy Cameron. Obviously, he wasn't out there. Zach Tui led Geelong with 28 disposals. He kicked to behind, and he gained 737 meters. I'm not a huge fan of just kicking out of the goal square into a contest, but if anyone's going to do it, I trust Tui to because he could last it. Mitch Duncan, I didn't think, had a great game, but he had a behind in 25 disposals. Tom Stewart, his usual 25 with 641 meters. Tom Atkins really embraced the physicality of this game with his 18 disposals, including 14 contested possessions and 11 tackles. Sam DeToning and Jack Henry, 10 intercepts apiece. I did not think Isaac Smith was very good in this game. He's been a little quieter the last few weeks. I do think despite whatever numbers may be out there, Mark Blitzovs has been phenomenal. And he was so good in midfield, so good playing all over the ground, getting in the contest physically and... Almost all of the Cats' best sequences involved him. Adelaide Crows, 21-12, defeating North Melbourne, 11-6-72. This was a bit disappointing for North to not stay in the game as much, even though they had never wanted the Adelaide over there now, 0-11 there. But the Crows kicked seven goals to four in the first. It didn't actually feel like it was out of touch until the third quarter. Crows went into the half of 26 and then kicked five goals to one in the third, so they were up 53 at three-quarter time. From there, it felt pretty secure, but the Crows had the better looks the entire game, and Ben Keyes found the ball at every opportunity, it seemed. He's kicking 2-2 from 29 disposals and having the most impactful touches in the forward two-thirds of the ground. Now, this was your game. I watched none of this. And based off of what I've read and just following the progression of this game, my perception of these teams has not changed in the slightest. North just doesn't have enough guys to lay tackles and defend to beat good offensive teams. Unfortunately, no. Even with Luke Davies, Uniac back in, you know, their midfielders are carriers and move the ball forward well. But other than George Wardwell, we don't see great pressure in the midfield and that's an area that North really need to address I looked a lot at the defensive side of this game because the Crows had to make some adjustments once Jordan Butts got concussed that occurred in the first quarter he had a head clash with Callum Colvin Jones and the sub was made at quarter time that required Josh Worrell and Mitch Hinge to play on some more important matchups and Hinge stepped up big time we talked about how unreliable he is and how he is maybe the most chaotic defender in the AFL at this point. He might take Sam Frost's crown if he hasn't already. But play, I'll, I'll mention Sam Frost more later, but I was having a discussion with one of the Hawks fans we follow, and he was saying, you know, Sam Frost should not be at the lineup anymore. And I think the Frost ball is dead because it's just objectively bad now. Mitch Hinge is the chaos player we need to all embrace, where, like, anything could happen, and we're just going to have fun with it. Yeah, what surprised me is that by committee, once Butts went out, the Crows still limited Nick Larkin. I thought Larkin was going to be able to get free of some matchups. He did get three goals, but was goalless in the second half. A lot of when Larkin got his goals did have to do with when North were winning clearances more reliably, because the Crows kicked four goals to one from stoppages in the first. 
and North managed to work that back a bit more in the second. But firstly, North was struggling to get some forward time. The Crows were efficient in scoring from turnovers. And then also when they were getting forward, Hinge and Worrell stood their ground. Hinge finished with a point, 26 disposals, 12 intercepts, 10 marks, and 668 meters. It's the best game that I had seen from him in defense. Hinge and Tease really defined this game for me, along with Isaac Rankin. I said that Rankin was going to go off. He was my pick for main character. And I think I hit that pretty closely, considering he kicked five goals straight from 17 disposals. We've talked about North's inability to defend Smalls in particular, and with Rankin being much more accurate toward goal than Josh Shelley, which is really the one thing that Shelley doesn't have going for him in his game right now. I liked that he was able to make himself useful even without being able to kick the goal. I liked that as well, but I'd love to see him, you know, really work with a specialist on that to tighten that up because if he have because if you could have two lethal small targets as well as still having an effective Tex Walker or Darcy Fogarty in the mix, I mean that's that's scary for anyone, even if you've got a better defensive unit than North, which most teams have. Rory Sloan led the way for the Crows with 30 disposals. Captain Jordan Dawson with 28. Eight marks, eight tackles at 636 games. Another versatile game for him. Rory Laird and Brody Smith with 24 disposals each. As you said, Rochelle did make himself useful despite kicking inaccurately. Kicked no goals too, but 23 disposals and 13 contested. Taylor Walker kicked 3-3 from 16 at 7 marks. Darcy Fogarty kicked 4-1. And Riley O'Brien, 52 hitouts, 15 disposals. Okay, those numbers make sense. But he had his first ever multi-goal game. That is the one surprising stat out of this game. That is the one thing that caught me off guard. Crows were nearly 20% more efficient inside 50, 62.5 to 42.6. They won hitouts by 21. They won clearances by 10, or plus 14 on stoppage clearances. They had 21 marks inside 50 to North Melbourne's 5, and they laid 29 more tackles. For North, most of their better performers were good ball movers. Harry Sheasel, 31 disposals. Bailey Scott, a goal, 24 disposals, 681 meters. Luke Davies, Uniac, a goal, 22 disposals, 12 contested possessions, 8 clearances. Darcy Tucker, 22 disposals and 8 marks. Jack Zebel, a behind, 22 disposals and 484 meters gained. Luke McDonald, 21 disposals, but I know you noted he didn't defend very well. And then Griffin Logan, Ben McKay, 10 intercepts each. Western Bulldogs 16-6-102, defeating Fremantle 11-7-73. The Bulldogs complete the season sweep of the Dockers. And this time it wasn't because the Dockers lost their shit upon seeing Rory Lobb. No, they just, the Bulldogs were by far the better team early and couldn't convert a ton off of it. That let Frio get back in the game and he had a really fun back and forth second quarter. Dogs went up by 17 in the third, let Frio back into it. Sean Darcy's goal... With 14.42 left, gave Frio a short-lived 60-58 to lead, but Rory Lobb scored from 57, and over those final 14 or so minutes, the Dogs really handed it to him, scoring seven of the final nine goals in the game, including five in a row to really take control. I think what's made the Bulldogs better at times this year, you know, I still don't think this is a team with a ton of really good role players and depth pieces, but they've had more players elevate to that top class guys like Bailey Dale who had a goal off 25 disposals in this game that's really like cemented himself similar to Bailey Williams among like their top tier of players 
it's tough to cement yourself in a top tier when the focus is already on a stacked midfield and Dale plays a little bit off of that, especially with Caleb Daniel moving to half forward. Dale has been the most prominent carry out of half back, and this is the most that people have been talking about him, and rightfully so, since his All-Australian campaign in 2020. The one role player for the Dogs I really like in this game was Anthony Scott. Seems like a guy who really gets involved in a lot of super important sequences. Scott hasn't kicked a goal in the past four games, but is still getting involved. Only had nine disposals, but they were, but they came at important times. But for the most part, you know, it was the usual Fontampelli, Libertore, Trelore, McRae, English, Daniel, Eugel Hagen that led the way. I mean, you expect Eugel Hagen to get important marks. You don't necessarily expect him to kick more accurately and kick 4-2 like he did on Saturday. We've seen it at times. It's just a matter of consistency with him. The other thing that I really noticed about this game is I think it's something we've I've commented on a bit this year, but was really obvious in this game is that other than Luke Ryan, Frio's defense is just not very good. Alex Pierce has had his share of good games, but the matchups against the Bulldogs do not favor Frio, especially when they aren't among the tallest of back groups. I thought Brennan Cox was pretty lousy. I think Rio's defense are great fantasy players because of all the kicks and marks, and I love having a bunch of their defenders on my team for that reason alone. You have Ryan and Cox or something? Yes. And I have Jordan Clark. But yeah, outside of Ryan, I don't see guys that are able to body up and get in these one-on-one contests. And I guess my one surprise is that Aaron Naughton wasn't doing a ton of those contests. But, like, collectively, it was really hard for Frio to stop. If they can't stop you in the midfield, you're going to be able to score on them. Their forwards are so good at creating chaos and forcing turnovers. But, yeah, they're, they're actual defenders. If you can test them, you're going to have a pretty easy time scoring. I think we saw that in this game. Also, Luke Jackson limited to eight disposals. Dogs as a whole did a really good job on him. And Sam Switkowski was basically invisible, which is frustrating because I really like him, but he's struggled for a bunch of this season, as well as Michael Walters has played. Walters kicked four goals off 15 disposals. He has not missed a set shot this year. That's some Luke Bruce type stuff. Or at least he has. He kicked one for a behind. Maybe he's missed some on the full, but he has not kicked a behind off a set shot. Early on, he victimized Taylor DeRay. And after that, I thought DeRay actually played pretty well. DeRay did have one ball that he just kind of dropped. It was like a mix of a drop and a falcon, I guess. But other than that, I thought he actually played a pretty consistent, solid game. Also like Mitch Hannon, who ended up getting subbed out for Riley West, who played really well in his quarter or so of play. Uh, Nat Fife, we thought he got managed. That was what was mentioned on the broadcast, but it turns out he has a stress fracture in his foot. And I mean, that's what had been bugging him all along at the plantar fascia issue there. The hope right now is that he will get back in time for the end of the own away season, but it's that Fife, so it's unpredictable. It sucks because he's been a really solid player. You can tell he's, you know, not just someone who means a lot to the fans, but is also really good still. And I think he's learned how to play at his advanced age. So for this to happen now is certainly a downer, even if it's not going to hurt them as a team as profoundly as you might expect. You still got Caleb Sarong and Andrew Brayshaw with the aborted balls in the middle and Often when Fife gets involved, he's able to run off of those. So 
maybe that's a spot where Neil where Neil Rasis comes in again, or maybe you move Michael Frederick a little more onto the ball and and bring back Nathan O'Driscoll to take more of a wing spot. I think you got to find a way to get Switkowski more involved offensively because Fife was kind of doing some some forward work at times. You got to get a guy like Switkowski more heavily involved. Like since Switkowski had his injury concern early on in the season, he has not been the same. You could have told me that he didn't play in this game, and I would have had to check the roster to find out that, yes, he did play. Ouch. One docker that I've really liked this year that unfortunately did not perform in this game was Matthew Johnson. A couple of bad turnovers. Uh, Caleb Poulter played his first game for the Dogs, and while he wasn't a great defender, I don't think he's ever been regarded as a great pure defender, but a mover out of the defensive 50, that's, I know, how some how Pies fans saw him, and... Yeah, seem to continue. I play him further forward because I think he could be a huge assist guy. His kicking accuracy was phenomenal. Like I don't think he has to to do what Ryan Myers does, but the kicking ability is excellent. I do want to credit Frio with one thing in particular. I want to award them the best loss of the week. Not that they played that well in a losing effort, but from a fan perspective, I think they had the easiest loss to stop. You trailed most of the game. There were some entertaining moments. In the final 14 minutes, you got the door slammed on you convincingly. Nothing that's going to leave you scarred for life or questioning, why do I commit myself to this each week? It was just, they got beat. You understand why. Still wasn't a huge margin. Needed to take more advantage of the offensive opportunities they had in the second quarter when they kicked 3-3. But that alone wouldn't have made the difference. I think of Geelong's losses to Frio and Port Adelaide as like, the right way to lose a game. You get beat. You know the other team was better. You had reason to tune in for nearly three hours of your weekend. You know, it'll leave you questioning this team's worthiness of being a finalist. But it's not like, you know, this is a super emotionally draining game because you weren't competitive at all or because you lost in the final mode. Like I said, usual suspects for the dogs. Marcus Bonampelli, a goal off 27 disposals, nine clearances, 512 meters. Bailey Dale, a goal off 25 disposals. Jack McRae, a goal, 24 disposals, 9 clearances, 8 tackles. Adam Trelor, 22 disposals, 12 tackles. Tom Libertore, 21 disposals, 13 contested possessions, 9 clearances, 9 tackles. My God, he's greasy. Mr. Maruka, help! Caleb Daniel, 20 disposals, 478 meters. Jamari Ugalhagen, 4 goals, 2 behinds off 15 disposals. And Tim English with one of the strangest lines... I've ever seen a goal, 30 hitouts, 10 disposals, an octopus, and eight contested possessions. Only 10 disposals, but 10 tackles. Pretty nice 100th game for him, yeah? Yeah, I'd say so. The 10 tackles for a ruck, I find very impressive. Like the only rucks that I can see putting up those numbers are him and honestly, Kieran Briggs. Rio were actually more efficient inside 50. Do you think it was a case maybe of more uncontested possessions? I think it was really swung by the dogs not cashing in on a bunch of early chances. By the time they had a 12-0 lead, they had 10 inside 50s to Frio's 2. Frio did win hitouts by 16, but the dogs were plus 13 on clearances, including plus 11 on stoppage clearances. They laid 14 more tackles, 87-73. to 73. Unsurprisingly, Frio did have 34 more marks and 89 more possessions just from the amount of time they spent kind of keeping it around their own end. Like I said... Good fantasy defenders. Other than Luke Ryan, not a lot of great players defensively, though. Yeah, let's look at those uh, defenders. Brennan Cox with 31 disposals, 13 marks, 9 intercepts. 
Luke Ryan, 24, eight interceptions, seven marks. So yeah, good hauls for you for them. I got 20 disposals and seven tackles out of Jordan Clark. In terms of players working through defense for Bruno, though, I was most impressed once again with Liam Henry, who had a career-high 33 disposals. I will say this. He had a couple of bad turnovers in this game, but I think they've found a place for him that fits him, fits the style they like to play, and he, he has gone from looking like a forward who could not play at the AFL level to a guy who's good at getting the ball out of their own 50. Really aggressive, takes the game on well, very quick, very active, and that's that's a positive. Up until a few weeks ago, I thought he was one of the worst players in the game, and now they've found a role for him, so that's, that's something to be happy about. Caleb Sarong led the Dockers with 38 disposals, 10 clearances, and 7 tackles. Andrew Brayshaw had 29 disposals and 7 tackles. Sean Darcy had, kicked 1-1 from 18 disposals and had 50 hitouts. But when he wasn't down on the oval, when he came to the bench for his rest periods, the Dogs took advantage of that time. English would win out over Luke Jackson, and they'd be able to punish their wins from stoppages. Man, we were really excited for this uh, middle Saturday game. Gold Coast Suns 5-12-42, defeated by Collingwood 18-12-120. Despite issues with some flights this week, over 22,000 were at Heritage Bank Stadium. It's the third highest attendance that the Suns have had there, all against Collingwood and all purposefully scheduled during the school holidays. But that wasn't the big focus in this game. It was how Collingwood won just with numbers and speed it's simple it's what they've done week in and week out and it worked from the beginning an 11 goal to one first half for the pies setting the tone the sun was not mighty it was 28 to 2 after one 72 to 10 at halftime i'm so disappointed got out to 94 to 10 before the suns finally got their second goal through ben ainsworth he had two matt Wow had two Hawako Oya had the first goal, but was quiet otherwise and was subbed off at halftime for Rory Atkins. I didn't expect Gold Coast to win this game, but I thought they'd represent themselves better. So Melbourne showed what sort of game plan you can use to beat Collingwood, whereas the Suns played right into Collingwood's hands. My question is, was it a bad game plan or was it like the players were too fired up and just kind of lost their heads? I'm not sure. I didn't think much about the Gold Coast game plan, probably because my focus was more on Hollywood's own domination, but it was it was predictable as to how they did it, and it was also predictable that when the Suns worked things back in the third quarter and actually won that quarter, twenty seven to twenty two, it came off their clearance success. They did that by scoring what the final twenty seven of that quarter, right? Yep. So I mean, the game was well. You had already heard the Collingwood chance from early in the third quarter. I mean, I forget when uh, the X score bot said it's over, but it was quite early. The Suns were looking to go longer into the 450, take advantage of the talls they had there, but they were turning over the ball in the forward half, and Collingwood were exploiting them on the outside. The Suns' wings were not up to par. I was wondering maybe when they'd move Lockie Weller or Will Powell Little further off the ground and maybe change the mix in defense to try and work things out there. So yeah, maybe in that respect, you could fault Stuart Dew's game plan. But, you know, as much as we've liked some of the Suns defensively this year, it's not like they're super deep in defense past Sam Collins and Charlie Ballard. 
And I'm wondering if Atkins coming in as that sub pretty quickly was due realizing his importance of needing a more solid mover who can work the outside like Rory Atkins can. And I wouldn't be shocked if he comes back into the 22 starting next week. Here's the problem when you play against Colin. You want to take advantage of their talls because that is a vulnerable point. I think that's something the Crows really showed. You want to take advantage of them when you can match up with them more evenly. Colin would also address that by bringing in Billy Frampton. You can see the merits of having that extra tall defender there along with Darcy Moore and Nathan Murphy. I mean, Jeremy Howe isn't particularly short, but you don't think of him as a tall matchup in that way. Frampton had just a really interesting game. Ventured forward for a goal. You could see his ass. Oh, yeah. That uh, kind of gang tackled near the end of the third quarter. And I think it was Bailey Humphrey that was most responsible for the dacking. But here's the thing. As much as you want to target their talls and you're going to try to kick long and create contested marks, if you get intercepted and they've got such good interceptors in Darcy Moore and Isaac Quayner and Howe and Murphy, it's pretty much their entire defense and their rebound can be lethal. Exactly. And they can change up their angles all the time. And when they see that you're fitter on the outside, they'll kill you there. The Dacos brothers both saw that from the beginning. If you don't capitalize and they intercept you, it's coming back the other way and they're going to get you. The Dacos brothers combined for 63 disposals. Nick kicked 1-2 from 36, had scored involvements, and Octopus 7 clearances and 500 meters gained. No surprise, he got the 10 votes. Josh ended up with four after his 27 disposal game in which he gained 535 meters. That's also the exact same amount of ground that John Noble gained in his one goal 30 disposal performance. I've heard that the Pies are working out the details on a contract extension for Noble who has elevated his game a whole lot outside of the clutch moments within the past about season or so at this point. Josh Dacos didn't kick the first goal, though. The first goal of this game went to Jamie Elliott. Yeah, Elliott uh, kicked five goals straight. His second we will talk about later because it was pretty damn good. Tom Mitchell, 30 disposals at 598 meters. Scott Pendlebury, 27 disposals at 10 score involvements. Isaac Quaino with 24. Jack Chris, a goal from 19 and 7 tackles. And Oleg Warkov in his first game, Back on the Gold Coast since being delisted had nine score involvements. For a guy who doesn't get out of his own 50 much to have nine score involvements says a lot about Collingwood's ability to go end to end. Pies were about 14% more efficient with their disposals inside 50. 58.1% to Gold Coast 44.4. They also doubled up the Suns on marks inside 50 with 16 to Gold Coast 8. Noah Anderson... Did have a pretty big game for the Suns again. A behind off 35 disposals, 8 marks, 7 clearances, 605 meters gained. Sam Stupid Sexy Flanders, a behind and 22 disposals. Is he back to stupid this week because they lost by so much? Sure. Uh, Will Powell, 27 disposals, 8 marks, 732 meters gained. Brayden Fiorini, a behind, 21 disposals, 9 marks, 482 meters that's a guy who, as we mentioned, has been one of the ones to really step up into Miller's ab absence. And I think if he plays a bit more back, maybe it could happen playing a bit further up from Atkins, but on the other side of the oval from him, that Fiorini can keep his place in the lineup, even when Toop's back, and that should be quite soon. Matt Rowell, two goals off 20 disposals, 17 contested possessions, nine clearances, eight tackles. 
Charlie Ballard, 18 disposals, 10 intercepts, 10 marks, 9 contested possessions, but not a lot of support for those guys. There was a reason that every single coach's vote in this game did go to Collingwood. But other than Nick Dacos, things were pretty divided as to who actually got the votes. Elliot Noble and Moore with five each, Josh Dacos, as I mentioned, with four, and Oleg Markov with one. We nearly had another 10-5-5-5-5 game, which we've already had twice this year. That's weird enough on its own. The 10 votes for the late Saturday game were pretty clear as well. Dan Houston, need we say more? Uh, we will after we take a quick break. Don't forget, you can find us on Twitter at American Spuddy. You can find me at Castle Media. You can find Ryan Arambe on Instagram at CathNameGryan. I'm on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. Been more active with some baseball stuff as of late, just having fun with the Immaculate Grid game. I feel like that's not a game that would be as rewarding if you tuned it to footy. As I said before the break, Dan Houston kicking in after the siren goal from 55 meters out in wet conditions. You know, even when you're as long a kick as Houston is, that's damn tough. And he had to get a sliding intercept mark before that to get the kick in the first place. Essendon, 10-14-74, defeated by Port Adelaide, 11-12-78. A back-and-forth contest with drama even before the game started for the power. Yeah, Dan Houston, spoiler alert, is our main character of the week, but Dante Vicentini would have been a candidate if it wasn't for how this game ended. Scott Lysette got injured very, very late in warm-ups. Vicentini was brought into the lineup. He was getting taped up on the bench as the game started. Actually, didn't come on for more than half of the first quarter. His family wasn't there to start the game, but fortunately, they live in the Melbourne area, so it was easy for them to get there. This is just a phenomenal story. It reminded me of the Declan Balfour stuff from the Eagles top-up game round two of 2022, where you know the, the change was made so late that he's still warming up, getting his equipment in place at the bounce. I mean, this change was made so late that they didn't even mention it on the Channel 7 broadcast until after the first bounce and after the first stoppage. Of the last five after the siren goals, I've been asleep for three of them. But I was asleep for like this entire game. So not like showed out last year where I fell asleep with like six minutes left. I was in and out of consciousness for this game. I'd had an extremely long, I guess, Friday into Saturday. But I'm glad I was awake and alert for these final few minutes. So you missed uh, Houston's and Jordan Dawson's from Showdown 51. What was the other? Max gone in 2021 which, like this one, I was on the Eastern time zone. You're excused, and also you're probably glad that you were asleep for that. Oh, extremely. I was looking out for me. But yeah, with this one, I actually was able to watch a decent amount of this game without spoilers. I did see one Instagram comment referring to Essendon choking, so I assume Port had won. Did you assume from the choke comment that it was, like, a late gut punch? Yeah, I'm surprised that they were actually the ones who would stay pretty good comeback before Port scored. And then I found out, I had watched like the first half without knowing that it was an after the siren winner and then got that and went back and watched the rest knowing how it ended. But still, there were some surprises, like the fact that Port led by 17 with seven and a half to go. And then all of a sudden, Essendon rattled off a couple of really quick goals from Jai Caldwell and Kyle Langford. 
And then Caldwell scores again with a minute 23 left to give Essendon a one-point lead. Essendon did take advantage of the Ruck mismatch. I was concerned for them in the Ruck at first because Sam Draper was kept out with his hip injury. But once Lysette went out, and he'd been playing so strongly this past month plus, I was very excited for Vicentini to get the debut. But Phillips was able to take advantage of the comparatively inexperienced Vicentini. And then once he was subbed out at three-quarter time for Jace Burgoyne, that mismatch was further exacerbated. And Phillips got some important big hits out to advantage to set up Essendon's best work later on in the game in general, including in those final few minutes he had hit out to Darcy Parrish that led to the second-to-last Essendon goal that put him back within five points with just over six minutes left after Caldwell gave them the one-point lead with a minute 23 left. He had an even bigger fist to advantage, but Darcy Parrish missed across the goals, so it was still a two-point game with 65 seconds left. The door remained wide open for Port, and they went right on through it at the end. If I had a nickel for every time Essendon had lost a game at the G in the past two seasons on a goal after the siren when they had a chance to put the game away shortly before, I'd have two nickels, which isn't a lot, but it's funny that it happened twice. To make it even crazier, both of those were four-point losses, and the same goal umpire called both after the siren goals. Other if I had a nickel moments. If I had a nickel for every time a Port Adelaide win this season on a kick after the siren touched right around the goal line, two nickels. If I had a nickel for every crazy after-the-siren finish involving Port Adelaide that I've slept through in the last two years, two nickels. My biggest observations out of this game, first off, it's awesome that Dan Houston was the one to get the winner because it's not often other than, I guess, Jordan Dawson last year, where the guy kicking the after-the-siren winner was like the unquestioned best player for his team, which is just super cool. It's nice when those things line up. This was a game that Port Adelaide, it felt like they tried really hard to lose with not being able to put away Essendon early. Like they had a 19 to 6 lead late in the first quarter that could have easily been like 34 to 6. And I think it's a completely different game if they actually capitalize on those early chances. When you're winning games, you're trying to lose. That's when you know you've got something going on. Also, as much as I like Scott Lysette, I don't think there's any team I would trust more for how to play without a Ruckman than Port Adelaide, considering how much they've had to do with the last couple of years. I mean, you've got enough capable players that'd be able to body up in the Ruck between Charlie Dixon and Jeremy Finlayson. You, you can even see Todd Marshall taken a couple times. By the way, Marshall, fabulous job on the goal line, just using his body to hold back. I think it was like a half dozen Essendon players. I love the visual of the goal umpire kind of like peeking through all the people managing to stay out of the play while all of that was going on and it's still being you know a very clear angle on that review oh yeah that got through just fine as for Essendon I thought this was actually one of their better defensive games like this is not a team with a lot of good tackling this is not a team with the ability to defend really well in one-on-one contests but I thought This was one of Mason Redmond's better actual defensive games. He had 11 intercepts. And I liked both Jaden Laverde and Jordan Ridley. Like, again, this is not a team that's going to beat you with one-on-one defensive marking, like, ever. But they made do in that regard and kept it tight. It's just, when you play a game like this against a good team 
and don't come away with four points, you leave feeling pretty empty. And Essendon have to feel pretty empty about coming up short against Port again this year. Two losses by nine points when opportunities were right there in both cases. You think about how in their first matchup, they kicked really well on a, on a day where across the AFL that didn't really happen otherwise. And then they kicked two goals, six of the fourth and had three opportunities late to win it. All of which, I mean, it's not that they were denied. They denied themselves. The difference is in that game, they probably were lucky to be in that spot in the first place. I This was kind of a game where like, I don't know if either team necessarily deserved to win. Like, Port were clearly the better team, but they also gave up some opportunities. And the fact that they were able to come out of this with a win, it's like, I'm starting to, even though I know these guys have had their finals trouble, and you wonder if they're using up their magic a little too early, hard not to believe at least something after a game like this. We often focus on one-on-one matchups when we're doing our previews, thinking about who's going to go to what player, but sometimes we don't really bring that home in our recaps. So I'll say that I expected O'Lear O'Lear to draw the assignment on Peter Wright. Wasn't sure how well that would go with Wright being a bit bulkier of a player just because, you know, that's not the body type that O'Lear and the Dinka people of South Sudan have. And you see that from the other South Sudanese players in the league like Shankworth Jap. But O'Lear was able to work on Wright really well and use his vertical ability to his advantage. O'Lear negated Wright all night. Wright held goalless with just six disposals and a single mark. O'Lear just three marks himself, but eight intercept possessions and five score involvements. So he was working really well when the ball was coming his way and then getting it back off of him. Other notable performers for Port, Dylan Williams, 22 disposals at 531 meters gained. Connor Rosie kicked three goals straight from 23, nine marks, nine tackles, and 616 meters. Kane Farrell, another excellent long kick, had a goal from 25 disposals, 13 intercepts, 10 score involvements, and 570 meters. These port defenders getting a lot of score involvements. You saw them being able to work the ball over the full length of the oval very well in this game, and that's been a strength of theirs all year long. Yes, Zach Butters and the like can win the ball in the midfield, but that often hasn't been necessary for port to do their best work. Butters did have a goal from 25 himself, like Farrell, had eight marks and gained 635 meters. And Houston, 32 disposals, 13 intercepts, seven marks, including that last intercept mark of Nick Martin's clearing attempt and the goal after the siren. Thinking about the whole thought process leading up to the goal, knowing that Essendon had like 17 guys in their own 50, you really couldn't pass it off to find a better opportunity. So, yeah, and should also not forget that a bit prior to Martin's attempt to get the ball out of the defensive 50, Mason Redmond cleared, but it was insufficient intent. There, It wasn't specifically to a player. It was, I want to get this to the boundary. I want to get this out of shovel for a bit. Allow us to reset defensively. Yes, it makes sense why you're going to flood the defensive 50, but your only hope then is to kick as long as you can, have that clear opportunity when the four... 50 is going to be so crowded and then hopefully put it down the spot so that it can carry and stay in bounds so you don't have to worry about a free kick. It's funny the free kicks in this game ended up favoring the Bombers because early on there were a bunch of calls that Darcy Parrish and Ben Hobbs were both pissed about and with good reason. There was one that I remember so so the way I watched this game was a little different 
one of the things that you can do with Watch AFL on the app, not on the computer, I think, but like on the mobile app, you can download games and shows and then watch them. And I watched the first half of this on my phone while flying from Chicago to Minneapolis. So my flight was New York to Chicago to Minneapolis. And I did this without audio because I only have wired headphones. I don't do wireless headphones. It's so easy to lose them. Like people lose AirPods like every five seconds. I've had mine for over half a year. Not been an issue for me. Being rad or special. No, it's just get better. Anyway, I couldn't find where it was, but I remember really early in the game. Before Port got called for a couple protected 50s, Essendon got away with like one of the worst protected area 50s I've ever seen. And I went back and kept trying to find this on replay. I like sped through the first half multiple times, could not find it. So if anyone does find it, let me know. Because it was so obvious and it wasn't called. Also, Kane Farrell, I think he and Willem Drew have both really elevated their game this year as Port have played better and better. Farrell was out with injury for a number of rounds. As I mentioned, his long kicking, like Houston's, has been able to get Port over the top and into good positions, especially going on the wing. But I had a better grip on Farrell's game before this year. Really, for me, it's been Drew and Dylan Williams, by who I've been most impressed. On Essendon's side, Darcy Parrish kicked those four behinds to change the game with just one of those turning into a goal, but 29 disposals, seven marks, and seven tackles. Every week, it's just like, this guy would be such a perfect, seamless fit for what Geelong are missing in the midfield. I really hope it happens. Zach Merritt, 31 disposals, 598 meters gained. Jai Caldwell, two goals in the behind off 24 disposals. Not dead, Ben Hawk, 23 disposals and 13 intercepts plus a behind. Mason Redmond, in addition to his 11 intercepts, had a behind, 21 disposals, 11 contested possessions, and 7 marks. Dyson Heppel, 20 disposals and 8 marks, so I did notice him struggle defensively a couple times. And Andrew McGrath, who was really the guy taking the ball out of the goal square, 20 disposals, 478 meters gained. Just an update before we move on to this game. Sounds like it'll be a 1-2 to two week out at this point for Scott Lysette with his meniscus issue. So... Is the plan for more time for Vicentini, you think? Or is the best move to go for a no-ruck approach? They've got the Gold Coast Suns this coming week. Maybe having that extra body in the ruck. Well, do you want to have that extra body, or do you just cut your losses and say, we're going to let Jared Witts beat us, but compete even harder on the ground? And then they've got Carlton in round 18 on Saturday afternoon at Marvel Stadium. Jared Witz is going to have, like, another easy 50 hit outs. Yeah, if you've got him, that's a captain pick right there. Hawthorne, 7-10-52, defeated by Carlton, 17-10-112. It was 55-5 at halftime. I did not watch much of this game. I decided, screw it, I'm going to go swim in the hotel pool, and I think it was the right decision. The takeaways I had for this game were very brief. It was nice to see Jack Silvani play well. Remember, this was a game where Carlton were without Mark Pitnett and Tom DeConing was laid out. Yeah, it was Silvani and Lewis Young then that were taking the bulk of the ruck time. Obviously, they were outmatched there between Lloyd Meek and Ned Reeves, and it was Meek who was more prominent in, in the ruck than Reeves on Sunday because Meek needed a back snap. He did. Reeves actually ended up being the one to get subbed out for Hawthorne. Savani had 12 hitouts, Lewis Young with 14, 
they did enough there to to disrupt. And Savani played well enough over the full oval. Again, five marks, 17 disposals at a goal that I think his inclusion could be warranted for another week or two at least. I've made it quite clear. I enjoy when Carlton struggle. I enjoy when they lose. But I gotta say, for Silvani, who is like a Carlton lifer, to finally have a really solid game is something that pretty much everyone should be happy about. The thing I was happiest about in terms of individuals for this game was that Jack Martin played a full game for the first time since coming back from injury. He was subbed out in both rounds 13 and 14. The Blues were so comfortable that they decided, yeah, let's uh, let's make sure Charlie Curno doesn't get hurt late. And that was how George Hewitt got on. Nice to see Hewitt come back in. He hadn't played since his concussion in round 11, but Martin kicks 3-1 from 12 disposals. He has been a real spark for Carlton in terms of maybe waking them up to other forward options outside the Colwood medalists. On a day where you kick 17 goals, you had 10 different players kicking over Carlton. I like that. The Coleman duo did combine for 5-5. It's funny, I had said that this was going to be a game of like horrible goal-kicking accuracy, and Carlton, I mean, the fourth quarter skewed it. They were six straight in the fourth. Hawthorne did their part to live up to the inaccurate kicking. Um, Their first six scores were all behinds. They didn't get a goal until a little over three minutes into the third quarter. Yeah, it was the first time that Carlton had held an opponent scoreless at the half since, I believe, 2004. It took the Hawks until their 23rd inside 50 to kick a goal. And they were goalless in four of the five quarters leading up to that. The West Coast Eagles were the last team to do that. No, not the 2023 West Coast Eagles. The 1989 third-year West Coast Eagles. It's got to be frustrating for Hawthorne because like, they have forward talent. They have some of it, yeah, but outside of Lewis and Bruce, there hasn't been a whole lot of consistency there. Fergus Reed got back in, Chad Wingard got back in. Hopefully Fergus could be a more viable long-term option because Wingard's toward the end of his career. I also just love the name Fergus for a footy player. The other takeaway from this game is that Sam Frost is unfortunately way overwhelmed. Yeah, he turns 30 in two months and... His style of play is not something that is going to age well for anybody. And I think without James Sicily, it really gets exposed. Yeah, if he's got one more year left on his contract, I would be shocked if the Hawks keep him on after that. I mean, it, it's all too predictable. Carlton get as many goals as they do and are able to distribute in terms of goal kicking so well when Sicily isn't back there to lead Hawthorne defensively. I'm not ready to go, oh, the Blues are back. No, no, I'm I'm not Dwayne Russell in that regard. Look at who they beat the past couple weeks. Yes, we said nice things about the Suns and the Hawks, but if you look at what the Suns did this week as well, and then also, you know, Hawthorne are a clear step behind. They're, they're clearly Team 16 here. So, Carlton, show me something this coming week. You got the Sunday Nighter against Frio, then we'll talk. Oh, they got they host Port Adelaide after that. Uh, yeah, they might come just crashing back down to earth. Do they need to win one of those games to impress you, or do they need to win both? I doubt they'll be able to win both, especially with how strongly Port have been playing, particularly at Marvel Stadium. I think that's a very winnable game for them Sunday night out west. I need to see that. I need to see another beatdown of the Eagles, and I need to see a real good fight 
in the Port game as well as Friday night against Collingwood. I mean, I'm. it's going to take a lot for me to be sold on the Blues. There's a reason they are in 14th. There are actually many reasons for that. This upcoming Sunday slate, by the way, ease into it with Geelong against North, I hope. I hope we get then Crows at Bombers and Carlton at Frio. It's going to be a good Sunday. Patrick Cripps, one of his best performances of the year, 28 disposals, 15 contested possessions, 10 score involvements, 8 clearances. I think he started rounding to form, and I think he's probably taken advantage of the bye to get himself back towards health because I think it was pretty clear he was playing through something. Adam Chera, two goals, 27 disposals, seven tackles. It'll be fun to see him against Rio again this week. Chera now with two goals in back-to-back weeks. That's the first time he's done that in his career. Sam Doherty, a goal off 26 disposals. Sam Walsh, 25 disposals, 13 score involvement, seven tackles. Adam Saad, woof, 24 disposals and eight marks. Blake Eakers will be fun to see him against Frio. A goal behind 22 disposals, eight tackles. Mitch McGovern has been the target of a lot of criticism from Blues fans, but had a pretty solid 20 disposal outing. Harry Mackay, set shot kicking wasn't great. He was 2-3 for the game, but 19 disposals, 11 score involvements, 8 marks, 4 assists, and 488 meters. Lockie Fogarty, a goal, 18 disposals, 10 score involvements. Charlie Carnell, 3-2, 13 disposals, 11 score involvements before getting subbed out. Carlton, 51.9% disposal efficiency inside 50. If you're above 50%, you're usually winning. Unless you're drawing, I guess, like Sydney. Hawthorne, though, 31.3. That's unsightly. Not going to be competitive in many games when you're, when you're doing that. Josh Ward came back in after a 38 disposal game for Box Hill the previous week and led the Hawks with 28. James Warple with 26. Harry Morrison, 24. Jai Newcomb, 21 and 7 tackles. I was happy that Ward was able to get back in. The two Josh W's, Ward and Weddle, might be my two favorite players to watch for Hawthorne as we really get to figure out this younger part of their list and hopefully really start to see them mature together. My two are definitely Newcomb and Nash. I think those are pretty obvious, but I think Newcomb's already further along in his maturity, and I really want to look to the younger side of Hawthorne's list. So yeah, those two Josh W's and Nash are ones on whom I'm really keen. Melbourne, 5-15-45, defeated by Greater Western Sydney, 7-5-47. Cold, wet, Alice Springs footy. Temperature for this game was in the mid-40s Fahrenheit. I'm not using your communist measurements. The lowest game temperature in Alice Springs before this was in the mid-60s. People in Alice Springs were given a gift. They were given the gift of Cam's footy. <laughs> uh, no, we ought to not have... Karen's footy this past. Yeah, we've been lacking for Karen's footy this year. Not on the schedule. St. Kilda not selling a game there this year. Honestly, thank goodness. But we had to have some game like this. And I guess it kind of had to be in a small venue as well. Here's the thing. In a lot of ways, this sucks. Because the Alice Springs game is one of the coolest things that happens. And for it to be such an ugly game, and for some of the people who were going to drive in a couple hours to not be able to because their roads were unusable, just objectively suck. And it'll be really cool. I know it's impossible, but if somehow, like, the AFL could say, you guys deserve better, we're going to give you another game this year. I know that's not going to happen. Like, the MCC would not be okay with giving up another D's game, but 
they deserved better than they got here. Even given the conditions, I was still surprised that Melbourne kicked as poorly as they did. 5 15 is inexcusable. And for this team to struggle to score so reliably as of late puzzles me. You look at what they've scored the past six games 76 of the loss to Port, 72 of the loss to Frio, 61 in that bad Friday game on my birthday, 66 for the King's birthday holiday, 63 at Geelong, and is now 45 in. Alice Springs, and their accuracy has been full most of the time. I mean, certainly didn't help that Bailey Fritch injured his ankle and had to be subbed out within the first quarter because he tends to be a more reliable shot for them. Tends to be. But still, the Ds are 29 goals, 61 in their last four games. It's an execution issue, plain and simple. It wasn't super windy. It was obviously muddy. But there were a couple of kicks that seemed to be affected by wind early on. If you put this game on like the deserve to winometer, it would lean very heavily to the Demons. Um, expected score, 74.9 to 43.4. But I will give the Giants this. While they did not deserve to win this game, they recorded 70 spoils, 94 one percenters in all. And I think they did a better job adapting to the conditions than Melbourne. Whereas Melbourne, you know, they still kind of try to do their same old stuff, play kind of a slower game. I think in wet conditions, you need to be able to play a little faster. You need to be able to get on the ground. And you need to be willing to play chaos footy in the wet. And other than Jack Vani lowering his head and attacking contests to the tune of 41 disposals and 24 contested possessions, no one else from Melbourne really did that. Seven clearances, seven tackles, and 602 meters as well for the Demons' vice captain. But if you're looking at midfield units as a whole, the Giants' midfield was superior, especially the connections between Tom Green, Stephen Canelio, and Josh Kelly. Green with 38 disposals and 10 intercepts, Canelio with 30, and then Kelly getting on the better end of a couple longer kicks as well, kicking two goals straight from 26 he blasted the last goal of the game from 60 meters, and he got enough of the bounce to get it through with just under two minutes remaining. I also love the visual of Kelly right at the end of the game. When the siren sounded, he just kind of collapsed because he had exerted to the fullest of his ability. He left everything out on the oval at Traeger Park. Now, I'm going to disagree with you and say that no, the GWS midfield was not better but I thought they did enough to compete. I thought defensively they did quite well. And that's the other thing. Like, yes, they still gave up 20 scoring shots to 12. They should have given up more points than they did. But I liked how their defenders played, especially Nick Hayes. I think Sam Taylor coming back in has really allowed Hayes to do his thing. And uh, Kieran Briggs did a really good job on Brody Grundy. I don't care that the Demons want hit outs and clearances. I thought Briggs played really well. Briggs got 20 hitouts, just eight disposals, but six tackles. He is a disrupting kind of Ruckman. As I mentioned earlier, Briggs getting double-digit tackles wouldn't really surprise me, and I would only really say that about him and Tim English in terms of the Rucks in the AFL at present. Late in this game, it became pretty obvious that there was, like, this game had one goal left in it. I thought of that probably with, like, I don't know, seven, eight minutes left, maybe six minutes left. And then it was Kelly who got that goal with 2.51 to go. At that point, 
was like, all right, Melbourne's not getting it up. They're either going to have to win this game with four behinds or tie with three behinds. And instead, they got one behind. In the final moments, there was no real dramatic chance after Alex Neal Boland's miss with 152 left. I, I thought he had another solid game. And if Fritch is going to be out longer term, he's going to have to be pretty good. Max Don kicked a rippler towards the goal square that kind of happened in slow motion. And Jesse Hogan was there to take care of it. And then GWS were able to get forward. And while they weren't able to do anything score-wise, they made sure that Melbourne couldn't get the ball back until the final 30 seconds when Judd McVie had an intercept in his own 50. Xavier O'Halloran was a big part of leading that sequence out. And then it was Haynes and Jack Buckley who kind of put a stop to things in the midfield to end the game. So the Giants have won three in a row. They've won four out of five. The Demons have lost four out of six. They lost two straight, then won two, then lost two. None of their games in this stretch have been decided by more than 17. So even though their style of play is still not the most compelling, they've been in entertaining games, so I like that. But it's time to consider, and I can't believe I'm saying this, GWS is not out of the picture for finals. They are now in 10. They have 28 points, a 7-8 and eight record, and a pretty friendly schedule with Hawthorne coming up next. After that, they got to take the trip to Adelaide, and things kind of ratchet up from there. They host the Suns in Canberra. They face the Bulldogs at Ballarat. They host the Swans. They travel to Port, and they host the Bombers. And then round 24, they face Carl. They have made themselves relevant much later in the season than I could have expected. When we had done their bi-week recap it was like don't completely combust and you pretty much already checked off everything you could possibly need to do for this season now it's like they're totally playing with house money at this point adam kingsley coach of the year i think he's gotta be i mean it's head hinkley you can make a case for but I'm, i'll go with kingsley honestly i think hinkley will win it but my vote would wholeheartedly go to adam kingsley they do not have to win another game for me to be satisfied with their season. Like, yes, it would be nice for them to take care of Hawthorne comfortably. Uh, honestly, honestly, I'd still say you got to beat Hawthorne and Gold Coast and win, win one of those last four. But like, they're already, they've already won more games than last year. They've beaten finalists. They've played exciting football. Last year, they were just there. They were probably one of the teams we thought about the least after Leon Cameron's departure. And even before his departure it was just well, what did they give us to talk about really very very little there was one segment of this game where i thought melbourne were going to run away with it so it was a 21 21 game at half toby green kicked on the run just before the siren missed left to tie the game then the giants get the first three goals of the second half go up 40 to 22 melbourne then respond with two goals in less than a minute Brody Grundy scoring off his own forward tap, one of the only times he really stood out to me in a positive way in this game, because like I said, Kieran Briggs really got the better of him. Then you got the Kazi Pickett goal. The few fans who were able to make it out fired up. He's clearly everyone's favorite player in Alice Springs. And you think, oh, here they go. You know, Kazi gets his goal. They're finding their run. They're going to pull away. And they did, they did take the lead. They did get the next goal. Ed Langdon early in the fourth. They did not score a goal inside final 16 minutes and 54 seconds. They got outscored 7-3 to three the rest of the way. Like, I think I texted you when Pickett scored, like, oh, they're fine. And I thought they were too. Terry Himmelberg, who drew a lot of praise from the broadcast team 
for his work as a defender and how he's fit there. 28 disposals, 606 meters gained. Finn Callahan, a behind, 23 disposals, 511 meters gained. Toby Green, two goals, a behind, 20 disposals, 586 meters. I'm a couple weeks behind on bounce, and I think Dan Houston has to have the three golden fist votes this week. But Nick Haynes deserves some love. Uh, 21 disposals, 13 intercepts, 8 marks, 525 meters gained. And Sam Taylor, 13 disposals, 12 intercepts, 8 tackles. Melbourne had 27 more inside 50s. They had 20 more clearances, 48 to 28, 14 to 2 on center clearances. Melbourne recorded 12 more tackles inside 50, 17 to 5. Although for the game, GWS out-tackled them 72 to 57. So that would mean in the middle of the ground, it was 67 to 40 on tackles. I think the best stat that describes how ugly this game was, Melbourne was 35.6% efficiency inside 50, and they were by far the better of the two in that regard. GWS, who won this game, 26.1% efficiency inside 50. You were spot on earlier. Alice Springs got Karen's footy. I thought that one of these Sunday games was going to be like a sickos game, and I did not think it was going to be this one. I think between getting a decent amount of rain in an area that doesn't usually get it, at a ground that doesn't drain as well as grounds that host AFL games every week, the, the, the conditions really added up. And while it was a memorable game and a memorable experience, I just, I feel bad for the people of Alice Springs, the surrounding area. Like I said, because this game is such a cool occasion and a celebration, and it didn't get to be what it usually was. Memorable, yes, but not not the usual like, celebration of the red setter that we usually get to enjoy. Christian Petraka kicked four behinds for 34 disposals at 685 meters. All four of those behinds were kicked before the halfway mark of the second quarter. It's as if he realized, nah, I'm not able to do this today. I'm not going to kick for goal again. Now I'm actually done. Lucky Hunter kicked no goals two from 30 disposals, 11 intercepts in 459 meters. Tom Sparrow, no goals two from 26. I guess Freeshaw continuing to be that prominent extra contested player with 13 contested possessions and 70 clearances in a 24 disposal day. Obviously, he'll shift back toward more of a halfback role once Clayton Oliver comes back in. Whatever that is, could be any week now. It seems almost too appropriate that he could be back against St. Kilda at this point. Why St. Kilda? Just with how the Saints have been really as of late, the last thing they need is for for Oliver to come back in against that. Ed Lightning with a goal for 24 disposals. Christian Sale about 24 for the back. Stephen May with 22 and 8 marks. Max Gone with 20 disposals, 17 hitouts. 16 contested possessions and 8 clearances. Jake Lever with 19 disposals, 11 intercepts, and 10 contested possessions. Jake Bowie also had 19. 14 intercepts and 12 contested possessions. Was surprised initially that he was so involved, but then when you think about how much this game had to be played on the ground out of necessity, it makes sense. And he also had a goal on his return from concussion. I'm still wondering, though, just thinking about this game in terms of accuracy and where Melbourne's problems have wide in terms of working in the 450, why the youngster has been such a good mark there all season, didn't get the chance of the rain, that being Jacob Van Roy. Yes, I was happy that Ben Brown was back in, but at what cost? It is time to talk about our final game of the week, one that I watched very little of, but for the first time in this show's existence, I'm going to say this sentence, I'm going to go back and watch a West Coast Eagles game. 
I think the last time I said that this show had been conceived, like, you know, the mommy podcast and the daddy podcast had their very special hugs, but like the show did not exist yet. I feel like the last time that you were talking like that, it was probably, I mean, if you were going back to watch an Eagles game because of the Eagles, was it the second Western Derby in 2021 where Caleb Sorong had that awesome goal that was the dagger? No, I think I watched that game live. Were you asleep for the win against Richmond? Nope. Man, I really don't know what it was then. West Coast 12-5-77, defeated by St. Kilda, 12-13-85. This game was 163 points closer than last week's was for the Eagles. And I want to be happy about the fight they put up. I want to be happy about how, I mean, they had to play pretty much everybody. They had... 25 available players on their 45-man list. Two of them played in the Waffle. You wonder why the Waffle team lost by even more than the AFL team did last week. East Fremantle beat the Eagles by 184 this past week. I would love to have some measure to compare like the quality of teams in the various state leagues so we could have a better measure of like how the AFL reserves do. Coburg would handily beat the Eagles reserves. Okay, I'm just trying to compare, like, you know, I don't know, compare, like, Werribee and East Fremantle and Woodville West Torrens or something. Just I'm just throwing games out there. I get it, though. They've had some, some competitions between some of the best teams in the state leagues, but they've been to mixed reception, and the injuries that have been suffered there have caused teams to shy away from those sorts of competitions. But we're not talking about another beat down here today. We're talking about the West Coast Eagles actually playing a decently good, okay, decently good first half there. I ended up being pissed off by this game, but they won the first half 56 to 32. That's good. Yeah, it's an attainable model of improvement, but I ended up being so angry about how they fell away in the second half. I mean, you should have seen it coming, honestly, if you didn't, because of how the Saints started attacking the game more during the later part of the second quarter, getting those couple goals late. They used handballs from the halfback, and they used their speed to open up the game, especially on the wings. The Zioagini, Miller, and Brad Hill were big parts of that, as well as, obviously, Jack Sinclair. And then also, in the second half, they stopped West Coast from having that easy time kicking uncontested in defense switching sides, looking for that option to open up further downfield. No, St. Kilda were forcing more Eagles errors in the defensive half, especially on some of those shorter connections. So those adjustments were very good from Ross Lyon and company, and I was just angry that the Eagles let this one slip away. Just one goal either way in the fourth quarter, and it was Mitch Owens marking Gene Gresham's kick in the goal square for a career-high fourth goal with 18.50 remaining. Mitch Owens has gotten a lot of love. I hear for it. I've liked him from day one this season. It's really cool that he's getting recognition across the board. Sorry, what do we call him? Pepper. Thank you. Yeah, Owens was the one that won this game for Sakilda. Plain and simple. Accuracy, contest in the forward 50. He was there all game. So like I said, I'm going to go back and watch this game, so I don't have too many opinions about it. But I got to say... As frustrating as I'm sure it is that the Eagles didn't get to celebrate a win, that they got up for this game and responded so well after what happened last week is good. 
and it shows that people are still like bought in. I mean, it got every reason to be, especially when you're playing so many younger players off on the list. I think it was five 18 year olds. Look, these are guys that should be fighting at every opportunity, if not for the team, then for themselves and their future in the AFF. And that happened. So big picture, not like there's too much to be upset about. Yeah. I mean, I guess the Eagles did a good job throughout this game. It, when they got into the 450, if they didn't score, they did a good job holding the 450, keeping pressure, applying quick tackles when they didn't win at stoppages. The pressure from Luke Shuey and Jamie Cripps was crucial throughout this game. So great that Cripps was able to get back for his first game since breaking his leg in the Western Derby in round three. Kicked 1-1 from 10 disposals, 14 tackles. I was wondering why the Eagles weren't able to pressure for so long. Maybe it's because they didn't have Jamie Cripps setting an example. Although, I mean, Luke Shuey should be able to be enough of an example as captain. Nine tackles in his 28 disposal game. And one of his better individual performances in his four years as captain. Just a shame that didn't come with four points. I love that Jamie Gore tackles the disposals. I feel like that's really tough to accomplish. Especially when both are double digit. Like, the one regret you'll have, there's something of a chance now that, you know, years from now, people will talk about this as the 1-22 in season instead of a 2-win season. It would be so funny now if they actually did beat the Blues in Melbourne. But you come out of this game knowing, hey, they put forth a real effort. They got beat. They gave you reason to actually watch a game from start to finish. And you got to see some young guys play. Yeah, Ryan Merrick did make his way back in. He was initially dropped, but he and Xavier O'Neill came in for Luke Edwards and Tim Kelly because they both were sick. And Harry Barnett made his debut as a sub, though it was quite late. The 19-year-old Ruckman from South Australia. I honestly hope that he would have been able to get in from the beginning, but Jack Williams kind of shut me up with good Ruck work, particularly in the forward 50 and also kicking his first AFL goal. And Bailey J was functional throughout the ground as well plugging a number of important marks in the first half. Realistically, this is probably the best-case scenario type of game for where, wait, where the Eagles don't win but have these encouraging signs. Yeah, they're probably not going to play that well in most of their remaining games, but like something in this spirit where it's like you leave with something to be satisfied with. Having said that, watch them just totally revert next week and still have the record kicked on them at the Gabba. If there's any game for it to happen this year, it's at the Gabba. Reminder that the Eagles have yet to host the Brisbane Lions at Optus Stadium. I saw a couple of sides had like taken away betting options for this game. On Bovada, the line is currently 82.5. I think at one point it was 87.5 on a couple of different sites. But like, forget the score. If you get this sort of blueprint each week, Team plays hard. Young guys give you reason to think that there is some sort of a future. That's really all you can ask for. And now the hope is that you have a good footy department above them. Still, I mean, obviously, I still want a new one because I want the team to fully move on from the premiership era. But but just a department and a coach that knows how to deploy those different role players. I mean, obviously, you know, that's been a challenge with how many people have been out hurt this year. There have been some less orthodox things that Adam Simpson and company have had to do, but they actually look like an AFL-level club in this game, and that has been a very, very rare sight since the Western Derby. 
So probably throughout this week, I'll start feeling a little bit better about the game and less pissed off about the fact that the Saints managed to kick six goals to three in the third quarter and still left a lot of, of opportunities wanting. I mean, I still knew, even though they hadn't taken the lead by three-quarter time. Yeah, St. Jonas got this. That's what still frustrates me, knowing that they were going to fall away. Leaders for the Saints, Jack Sinclair, 30 disposals, nine intercepts. Brad Crouch, a behind, 26 disposals, 17 tackles, and seven clearances. That's one off the St. Kilda record, which Jack Steele holds. Remember, the AFL record was set last year by Rory Laird when he had 20. Rowan Marshall, 34 hitouts, 26 disposals, 17 contested possessions, and eight clearances. Mason Wood, a goal and a behind off 24 disposals. Jack Steele, a behind, 22 disposals, 7 clearances. Also a 22-disposal game for Nazia Wagon-Miller, who gained 474 meters. Jake Gresham, pretty significant in the Saints' comeback, a goal of behind, 21 disposals, and 11 contested possessions. The Eagles were the more efficient team in terms of overall disposal efficiency, going over 78% to the Saints' 68 but inside 50 was where West Coast had their struggles. If they weren't marking or scoring immediately off stoppages, they weren't having an easy time. Some of their handballs inside 50 were were not great. They allowed St. Kilda to rebound at times or at least be able to force more stoppages where they could get better numbers. Eagles efficiency inside 50 was 46.2%. The Saints, 62%. That's You can't give up 60%. Disposal efficiency inside 50. Even with Shannon Hearn and Tom Brass back there, the other guys still need to lift. Hearn with 30 disposals, 13 marks, and 628 meters. Still so important to the Eagles structure. Has been hard to replace all season. I don't know if he plays on. I hope he does just in the hope that he can end on a season that's a little better than this one for himself and for the club as a whole. Alex Witherman with 29 disposals, 12 marks, and 535 meters gained. Liam Duggan had 27 and 8 tackles. Dom Sheed, 25 and 9 tackles. Burras had 20 disposals, 14 marks, and 9 intercepts. Back to better form for him, and Hearn providing support certainly helped in that regard. Bailey J. Williams, a goal from 39 hitouts, 14 disposals, and 7 tackles. I went from wondering, what does this guy even do at the start of the season? to being pretty impressed by him in the span of 15 weeks. He's playing far above what I ever expected from him, and hopefully he, Jack Williams, and Harry Barnett can grow into a good long-term combination. Time to wrap things up with Mark of the Week and Goal of the Week. Last week's Mark of the Week winner was Nick Murray over Ash Johnson, but we both preferred Jake Stringer against Neil Erasmus. This week's nominees are Jamari Hagen coming in from the side, going over Sean Darcy in a pack, you got Tom Barris kind of crashing a pack from the side against Anthony Caminiti. You got Oscar Allen over Josh Battle. He then went on to secure it on the ground. Benjamin, what's your pick? My pick is Oscar Allen. It was a really physical mark, and being able to get over Battle like that was impressive. That was the that was visually the best mark of the round, and it was probably the toughest of the three as well. Even though he didn't secure it as cleanly in the air, it was the mark out of these three that made me have that initial big reaction the most that's the one i'm going with as well the goal of the week last week was won by andrew brachel he crumbed into congestion in the pocket managed to get off an andrew phillips tackle and snapped around jake kelly as well as his own body 
I'm surprised that Brayshaw won that over Jake Stringer with his long soccer, but I ended up liking Brayshaw better out of those two. This is an incredible group of goal nominees this week. We've had so many great goals this season, and I mean, the goal pack has been much better than the selection of marks that we've had thus far. Hopefully that changes and the marks are able to catch up late, but your nominees for this round for goal of the week, Jamie Elliott, his second of five goals, he ran onto Jack Crisp's kick into 50, got through Charlie Ballard, kept the ball from going across from behind, and came back across the goal line himself to soccer it through. Dan Houston's after the siren winner is a nominee, as is Noah Long's goal. He got a handball from Andrew Gaff in the right pocket, Stefan will name stalker tackle before managing to get the ball on the boot before Jackson Clare closed in. And it was an impressive angle on that. Got some bend on it. I can't overlook Jamie Elliott's goal, though, as much as I loved Long's. Yeah, kind of an easy pick. It's Collingwood. It'll win, even though after the siren goals always have potential to do well in these polls. Jamie Elliott was definitely an honorable mention for main character this week, along with Dante Vicentini, but... Dan Houston. Yeah, kind of an easy one. Thanks for sticking around for the entirety of this recap. I know that these can go pretty long, especially now that we've got full nine game rounds again. Hopefully we didn't drag on for anything for too long. A reminder that you can follow us on Twitter and YouTube at Americans Footy. I am personally on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. I am on Twitter at Castle Media. Brian Harambe is on Instagram at CaptainGrian. I'm tired after this, and it's late enough here that the Ashes play would have already started if they still required another day for that test. It's late enough that you could also consider it early. Yeah, that would do it. And that will do it. Bye!